and welcome to the Every Woman podcast. I'm your host, Anna, and every month we'll be bringing you the stories, insights and opinions of inspiring people in business on a wide range of topics, asking the questions you want the answers to and doubtless prompting some more in the process. Today we're talking to Jacqueline de Rojas, president of Tech UK, the organisation that represents the tech companies that are defining our present and our future, with currently over 900 members from FTSE 100 companies to startups. So Jacqueline has dashed out in the middle of the Diversity and Inclusion Leaders Summit that we're at now to talk to us about all things tech and gender. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Now, I know that you were recently on Desert Island Discs. <laughs> I can't promise this will be as exciting, but you were quoted on it as saying that technology can be the great equaliser. Tech presents an enormous opportunity, providing you have the skills, imaginations can run wild and boundaries can no longer exist. So I love the idea of boundaries not existing either in innovation or social mobility, but how far can the digital landscape flatten inequality in, in, in all ways? Does it need to flatten? I think more embrace possibility for everybody so we can create huge spikes of creativity, I think. But for tech to work for everybody, it really has to reflect the society that it serves. And currently it does not. You know, we've got to build products that work for everybody and we can't have products that are based on privilege and bias. And by that, maybe I mean things like, I don't know if, if you've read the new book by Caroline Criado Perez. <laughs> I'm halfway through it. <laughs> right. Invisible Women. Mm. And this is where we're living in a world where bias is so inbuilt and entrenched that we've stopped seeing it. Great examples, tiny examples like, why do I always carry a shawl around with me in an office? Well, because they are set to five degrees too cold for most women. Interesting. Why are there not more loos for women? Because we take, you know, more than one and a half times longer to pee. You know, just stuff. Why are police stab vests not built for humans with breasts? We are living in a world that's got built-in bias everywhere and we have simply stopped seeing, seeing it. it. It's, it's true, isn't it? You just assume that this is the way things are. Which is why when people point out that this is not the way things are, it's such a powerful thing, isn't it? It's a sort of a game changer. It is a total game changer. I think the other thing we have to be really mindful of is that we live in really interesting times where our dependency on technology is increasing at pace. And your university place, your mortgage, your job interview is all decided by an algorithm. And if that algorithm does not necessarily include all of us or has inbuilt bias because it's designed without a diverse design team, then we are going to create a world that doesn't work for everybody. So are we going to go from a, a world of male privilege or, or privilege of certain parts of society pre-tech to one post-tech if we're not careful at this juncture? I think what I'm saying is the rise of women does not necessarily mean the demise of men. I'm going to put that on the Absolutely. table first. Yeah. What I think it means is that if we don't alter the direction of travel for this, then I think it has tangible consequences for both 
business and society. And we risk producing products and services that simply don't meet customer needs or customer expectations, or they won't scale effectively. Well, obviously, we're at the, the, the Diversity and Inclusion Leaders Summit here. I mean, has there been anything interesting that has come out of the conversations uh, going on today? I think there's been so many things. It, it, it ranges from women don't have the same level of confidence, especially when they come back from a career break, either a caring for uh, an elderly parent or a relative or from a career break from having a, ch- a child. And I think that that's probably both men and women, by the way. But there is this confidence issue that women and parents face when they come back to work. And we've got to recognize that that can range from anything from, you know, we've been in leggings and T-shirts for, for six months. Now I've got to get back onto you know, public transport and fit in with everybody else. (laughs) Haven't seen another human being that wasn't gurgling. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, exactly right. So so words are important. And, and, you know, the general narrative of what's going on in business, what have I missed? You know, your head is down. Women will take lower paid jobs or, you know, just to, just to try and fit in again. And also I think they will, they will possibly not come back to the same level of role that they were in before because they want more flexibility and our returners programs therefore become really important to make sure that they're fit for purpose. Mm. How how can technology work to help to address these these challenges, these barriers? Technology can be the great equalizer. We've mm. talked about that. And I think one of the ways is that so you can stay in touch with people who are on a caring break. And that's really important because certainly in my day, we didn't have email. We didn't have, you know, tech at home. In fact, the mobile phone wasn't even invented. So thank you for having me on the program. <laughs> um, I do like to think I am a bit current these days, but, but actually I think work is not a place anymore. It's where you are. Mm. And that is really interesting. If tech can't get it right for returners, then I'm not sure which sector can because mm. we've got the means to do it. We need to perhaps look at the culture of work and the culture of leadership where our leaders are walking out of the company at 2.30 in the afternoon to go and pick up their kids, which tacitly gives permission for the others to do the same. Absolutely. I mean, this changing landscape of work is so ripe for so much potential. Uh, You know, obviously a few bambi wobbly legs as we're going along. Too much work is, is, you know, too much connectivity is as bad as too little, perhaps some would argue. Let's talk specifically about diversity and inclusion and your journey through it. I mean, why are you personally so passionate about diversity and inclusion? Oh, gosh, for so many reasons. So, <laughs> give um, me a few. Yeah, give me a few. So I'm half Chinese. Uh, I, I didn't know I was Chinese until I went to school and then, you know, suffered the bullying because of my Chinese surname. And... I realized that actually there were a few people around me who were just really generous, specifically some teachers who just got me into sport and subjects that I really loved, like languages, and just pulled me through that difficult time. And I surrounded myself with people who just cared about me a little bit. Home was tricky. I had a violent father and uh, not a very fatherly stepfather. And so life was very difficult for me until I got to age 16 and I was big enough to push back. Mm. And um, 
you know, I remember at age 16, my stepfather said to me, what are the, what are the, what's that in your hand? And it was my, my O-level results, my GCSE results. And I got rather good results, nine A's and a B or something like that. And he said to me these words, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to show me up? Wow. And it was at that moment where I decided, you know, I actually think I want to go on a path where I can unlock as much potential as possible and not be invisible, which I had been my whole childhood mm. because I didn't want to be victimized by my parents. Mm. And so what I realized is in later life is that the role models that you have around you, even if they're negative, can really power you forward because I for sure did not want to be like them. Mm. And as a parent myself, I have never emulated any of their behaviors. So we are role models, whether we choose to be or not, good or bad. Good or bad. But obviously, you know, people don't always take that positive route, do they? I mean, what's the mindset that says, I don't want to be like you, and I am more, and I am bigger, and I can take up space, and I can be seen? Yeah. No, it's a ladder, isn't it? It is a ladder. And I think, I, I honestly, I think I gave myself the label of survivor at age four. And because I was in such extreme circumstances, you know, no money, violent parents, um, abusive parents, and then in a, you know, a playground, which was not very conducive to, to growing up safely. I think I found some resilience there where mm. I thought I've got nobody to depend on but myself. Mm. And so I grew up really fast. And I, I just look back and think, then I joined the tech industry mm. in a very male dominated environment where, you know, I was told at one point in my career, Jacqueline, we simply don't put women on the leadership team. And so I went from frying pan to fire and then into a, a really tricky work world. And honestly, my motivation for helping other women is it simply shouldn't be this hard. Mm. And I choose to reach out the hand of generosity because frankly, dragging it around as negative energy and baggage just wouldn't serve me. Mm. Like you say, it undermines your resilience. And But these are choices, aren't they? They're very they are choices. strong choices. I love the idea that you called yourself a survivor. It's sort of like, although I'm, I'm sure you didn't think of it at the time, but it's like a personal branding. It, it's that lodestar that guides you, doesn't it? It is, but it has a flip side, which is if you are resilient and you are a survivor, it does mean that until you go through quite a long period of self-reflection, you don't reach out for help because you think it will, I certainly thought it would reveal too many vulnerabilities and that would weaken me. And in later life, what I realized was that revealing my vulnerabilities, sharing my story actually becomes my fortress. And obviously in, in terms of mental health, we talked to somebody, uh, we talked to Poppy Jaman, uh last week, I think, about mental health in the workplace. And that's part of that as well, isn't it? That sense that you can be who you are, you can reach out, you can be honest, and it doesn't necessarily make you smaller. It doesn't. And actually, interestingly, the moment I decided to share my vulnerabilities, to not have all the answers, but to have some questions, mm. was the moment I crossed the chasm from manager to leader. Because it gave other people the space to be amazing and to and gave them permission to join in and be creative and innovative. Beforehand, all the great ideas came from me, in inverted commas. You know, I didn't actually <laughs> give anybody any space and probably they weren't great ideas, by the way. But, you know, it set me free as well because you will run out of answers if you think you've got them all. 
I suppose, I mean, diversity is about making space for everyone and leadership is about making space for other people as well as it's a sort of, you know. It's sad I didn't know that when I was younger. (laughs) It really irritates me. Um, Let's just talk uh, again about diversity in in tech and and more broader remit. I mean, what's the one question people always ask you about diversity in tech in particular? And has it changed over the past, say, decade? Yeah, the question they ask me is, you know, what can we do to move the needle? It's still that question. It is because the stats haven't moved. Is it particular to tech though? I mean, I know that there are imbalances everywhere, but tech is traditionally seen as as a very male-dominated industry even now, really. We have 17% of women in tech, Yeah, average across the sector. If you look at cyber, we have 10%, so it reduces dramatically. And if you go to engineering, it's 6%. God, I mean, that's... It's depressing. There's no balance there, is there at all? No, there's no balance. And when you couple that with we have to make sure our connected future is built by diverse teams. Boy, we've got to move fast. Yeah. And it's not just gender diversity, it's diversity in all its forms. So, you know, we really in cyber, we could really do with more people on the Asperger's and autism spectrum because they can see trends that us mere mortals can't spot. The trouble with that is that self-declaration that you've got something like that has something of a stigma attached to it. So we have to find a way to create a culture where it's okay to self-declare mm. about superpowers that you might have. And to classify it as a superpower. As you right. say, it's all about changing that the way that you're understanding and putting out what, what is unique about you, really. I totally agree. If you want to change the world, change the narrative. Mm, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> it's a shame though that it's still that one question. Are there any other questions? Do people ask, uh, one of the things I've talked to quite a few people about is at what point do you have to start providing those role models, those tech role models, so that women, young women particularly, will go through a pipeline where they will see STEM as a career, they will see computer science as a career. Perhaps that needs to be changed as a narrative as well. It does. I, I notice that there is an amazing children's bookshop opened in Brixton and it's called Roundtable Books and I'm plugging it because they produce children's books or sell children's books that are inclusive and diverse and when you think about this stat which is last year of all the children's books that were published only four percent had a BAME character in in them and of that four percent only one percent had a lead character which was of BAME origin. And so if we are not putting these stories in front of little people, mm. how do we expect them to grow up in an inclusive and diverse narrative with that in mind that if they can see it, they can be it. If they can see, you know, role models in books that look like them, you know, wow, why, why is there not more of that? Why is that not a thing? Mm. And then you move to, I, I'm an ambassador for the Girl Guiding Association where we've just launched new STEM badges starting with Consent Online. And, oh, interesting. Right. So there are 500,000 um, girl guides and brownies in this country. And it is so exciting that alongside the other skills of building fires and whittling. making paper lanterns, <laughs> whittling, and, you know, they can learn Consent Online, they can learn, yeah. they can get a, an AI badge, a cyber badge. It's so exciting and industry is sponsoring this to make sure that it scales. And I think when they go into an environment, which is they choose to go, it's not school, they choose to go on, you know, after school 
And in, in a church hall or a village hall, it's really exciting and they are loving it, mm. really loving it. I love the continuity as well because it, it, you've got those sort of very physical skills plus the computer skills and the yeah. online skills. And these are all, this is our new world, isn't it? It is. You have to be able to do both yes. to be a healthy person, don't yes, you? Yes, absolutely. Balance is is very important. So we get them, you know, and then we need to get them through to where they're choosing subjects at school. Mm. So get them through the barrier of, you know, we've learned to do a bit at Girl Guiding or we've read it in a book or whatever. And then look at things like the WISE campaign, which, you know, just looks at what girls could do based on the tendencies that they display. So could they be an explorer or, you know, which is different from saying, would you like to be a data scientist? Well, exactly. Or would you like to work in computing? Yes. I mean, it's not inspiring for most people, is it? Just that very cold, hard, but creating, again, as you say, those narratives, creating those compelling stories yes. where people go, I want to do that. Exactly. I can see how I can do that. And create a world where teachers are that moment of inspiration. Parents are, we've got Founders for School, which is a platform created by Sherry Kutu, where you can register to be a mentor and go into your local school and inject that moment mm. where you might be that person that inspires a young person to say, I'm going to go into tech because I heard a great presentation or some, someone else's story that said it isn't that hard or isn't that technical. You can be creative. You know, all of the things that tech is. Mm. And we, I think we wall ourselves up behind three letter acronyms, which are dull and boring and inexcusably inhuman. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I love, I love the idea that, you know, it, it becomes normalized as well, that, you know, that it becomes a crucible for creativity at all ages. Yeah. Um, you have children. I have one girl and two boys. I would imagine with you as a mother, not, but any difference in the way that they approach tech and the way that they see it and, and in larger uh, issues as well and, you know, how the future will be and where their place is in it. I have a feisty bunch. So Stephanie, the youngest, is a musical theatre actress performing in Fame. She's performing this Latina Carmen character who's just ruling the world. Mm. And then she dies of a drug overdose. Um, but it's on the stage. <laughs> I cry every time we go. But she, you know, she definitely stands with her feet planted firmly on the floor in, in a very assertive stance. She is someone who takes her place and takes enough oxygen out of every room mm. and and really believes in diversity and inclusion in all its forms, as do the boys. And I think that's really important that they all have this inclusion and diversity golden thread throughout whatever they do. I think the next generation doesn't see as much of a difference as perhaps my generation and the generation before that in terms of inclusion. You know, the industry wasn't always like this. We had women in, in NASA. I don't know if you've seen the film mm, Hidden yes. Figures. The women the were called, computers. they were called computers. <laughs> yeah. And they were doing all of the software side, whereas the glamorous side, so the market was, uh, labeled it was that the men were involved with the hardware. They were called tin men. Mm. There's oh, even a where film it comes called from? tin men. I didn't know that. And so it wasn't until the personal computer was invented and marketed at men, actually, that when you put the software and hardware together, it sort of excluded the women. 
And it, you know, when it was easy and you didn't actually have to code hard code and it was already packaged up, then the men took over. So it was quite interesting how that whole cycle mm. happened and excluded the women. And of course, you know, flexible working wasn't easy then. So you had to really battle to stay engaged in the industry. Mm. So marketing basically laid the groundwork for... And it was ever thus. And it was ever thus. (laughs) I wanted to just return to the gender balance in tech. Um, Just a personal interest. I um, have spoken to a few women in tech who uh, feel that they don't, they are always asked about being a woman in tech. How do you feel about that? Because they, uh, there was a sort of mixed, one of them said, no, it's the least interesting thing about me. You know, I'm, I'm just a person in tech. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a CEO. I'm a whatever. Do you think we still need to be highlighting, for example, that you are a woman in tech or you just a president of tech? Do you know, it's an interesting one. How, how, how visible do we need that distinction still and why? Oh my God, with the stats as grim as they are in tech, I think we really need (laughs) to keep asking that question. Yeah. It's not the only question, but I think we really need to highlight role models so that we can acknowledge that we need people up there so that other people can aspire and see what's possible. Mm. I absolutely think it's really important. I understand that there is a point of view which says, just treat me as a human. Mm. But I do think that we are facing into such dreadful statistics that we have to do something which highlights the opportunity for women in in this sector. And actually, let's face it, tech is in every sector. Mm. And it isn't just an issue in tech. My other question, though, that I would love to ask whenever diversity or inclusion is absent in a team or a meeting is simply, where are the others? Because if you ask that question, then we all play our part for equaling the playing field Mm. for everybody. Mm. So calling it out. Calling it out. Where are the others? Where are the others? Yeah. I am going to take a little bit of a side turn here because I want to come back to this idea that you talked about earlier about diversity being not just about gender balance, but Mm. about everyone. And I want Mm. to take one uh, aspect of it in particular, which I think is personally is quite interesting in in terms of tech, which is age. Mm. Now, age in tech, you know, I can see tech becoming much more egalitarian in terms of, you know, gender and and BAME and, and everyone else. But Age is still, I think, the one that we might struggle with on this one. And it's as much a diversity issue as anything. So what are your thoughts on that? We are in danger of leaving people behind if we aren't cognizant of what we do on the age spectrum, for sure. There are people who are uninterested. I think 12% of the population of the United Kingdom has absolutely no digital capability whatsoever. And that's a problem, especially when we're putting government services online You know, how do you get your benefits, banking, all of that that stuff? It's very, very tricky. Um, We also are facing into a world where, you know, people worry about the rise of the robots. Will they take our jobs and that sort of conversation? But actually, the real question that I heard Yuval Noah Harari talk about, the Israeli historian, he said, it's not the robots we should be worried about, but it's about how we reskill ourselves every 10 years or less. And that, I think, is the message to all ages, but especially people of my age, I'm 56, and people in this age bracket, we need to be able to reskill ourselves. And this isn't a mandate from central government 
or from business. This is about how do we stay current in order to stay included in our digital future? Because it's going to be now a personal responsibility to reskill ourselves. It's not going to be someone else telling us. And I think we have to get away from this. Educate yourself when you come out of you know, school and go to university or, or not, or, or apprenticeship, whatever route you take. But it isn't a one shot at education. Mm. It's lifelong learning that will become important. Yes. And again, that fits in as well with the changing landscape of work. It's not, you know, the changing landscape of things like retirement, all of this, it's all just in a big upheaval, which is very exciting. And, and as you say, demands a lot of personal commitment to <laughs> making sure that you are it does. within it, the... It, I think it's personal commitment. And also employers will have to change their level of tolerance around who they're employing. Because by 2020, there'll be 1.2 million jobs that need to be filled in tech. 90% of which will require some kind of digital capability in their skill set. So we're going to have to inject people, mm. maybe not literally, but inject people with micro modules of learning. And that may not mean like a, a one or two year, you know, it's learning big course. course. Yes. It'll be, how can I give you three weeks of, you know, important stuff you need to know mm. so that you can get going on this role. Is it a bit a bit like a digital apprenticeship really, isn't it? It's Possibly, learning on the yeah. go maybe. Yes. It's certainly it's certainly mobile self-taught online. And that yeah, agile, fluid future that we are all approaching. And with that means that the infrastructure needs to support it. So we we must have broadband and Wi-Fi everywhere. Dare I say it, 5G is going to be important in all corners of the country. Hashtag not just London. <laughs> How are we doing on that? Rubbish. Front? Oh, really? <laughs> I think so. I think we still have big uh, areas of the country, which I would call dark. And, you know, let's face it, we need to have people who live in rural geographies able to build global businesses as That's much as people in the cities. You know, otherwise we're going to just, you know, big things are going to hit us. Climate change all of that stuff, we can't keep dragging people into cities in order to earn a living mm. because we just get this whole pollution, climate change issue hitting us right in the face. And why would we spend all our time commuting when you can do exactly what you need to do from where you live? And and also, you know, it's about decentralizing wealth. I mean, certainly in England with, the, you know, London being the major wealth center, it, it doesn't help the country. It leaves it impoverished in a lot of ways in, in you know, places that could be vibrant, yes. as you say, if they were more connected. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, how do we build a digital nation of significance? I think we build it by including everybody wherever they are. Absolutely. Yeah. Jacqueline Dorajas, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 